Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Well, I'm going to have you stand again for the reading of God's Word. We're in Luke chapter 4. We're going to read verses 31 through 37. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before all of them and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? What authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Church is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God. Well, we're going to talk about demons this morning. Aren't you excited? Only because it's, this is the next passage in the text. <laughs> it's kind of a thin text, but so it, I'm going to take the opportunity to talk about demons. So if you notice, the title of your mess, the message this morning is, What About Demons? I want to submit to you, there's a lot of questions, a lot of un- uncertainty, a lot of confusion on the part of many people, uh, not only unbelievers, but even many believers. They're not quite sure what to believe. They know the devil exists, but what about all the other stuff that surrounds them. So hopefully I'm going to be able to answer some questions this morning and clear up any confusion that any of you might have. So what about demons? Do they really exist? What do you think? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Okay. So if you answered yes, who exactly are they and where do they come from? So we're going to look at that. We're going to explore that. What if anything... Are they responsible for? What do demons do? And how are we as believers to view them? Now, of course, if you don't believe that demons exist, then this man that we've read about just here in verse 33, is he simply emotionally disturbed? Is he insane or what? How do we account for this text? C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Have you ever read that? It's a great read. If you not read it, you want to get a copy and read it. In the Screwtape Letters, he says this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. So there are people who say, oh, I don't believe in them. I don't believe in them. Well, they're thrilled that you don't believe. Okay? You're ripe, ripe territory for them. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The demons themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist, in other words, someone who doesn't believe in supernatural, and as well, a magician with the same delight. So that's an interesting perspective. And a lot of people are on this this end of the spectrum, this end of the spectrum, We want to kind of bring some clarity and some perspective about this whole realm. Have you ever noticed uh, that there's there's a flood of books, um, movies, video games, every kind of media uh, about the fantasy worlds of wizards and spirits, um, ghosts, alien beings, superheroes, superpowers, there's just a flood of this. So there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a definite interest in the supernatural. There's something in us that God has built into us 
that wants to engage and embrace the supernatural, but it's how we do it. Many people today are very, very superstitious. Superstitious, and they believe in the paranormal, given to pseudoscientific ideas. I love UFOs, don't you? You know how much time and energy and money is spent by our government in, in trying to figure out UFOs? I can tell them, just pay me. <laughs> but what about believers? Sometimes, for believers, the reality and fantasy of that unseen realm can merge to create a confusing and often unbiblical view of the demonic realm. What do we believe? What does the Bible teach? How many know it's important to read your Bible and to know your Bible? So we're going to look into the Bible because the Bible is going to tell us there's lots of anecdotal stories, are there not? I hear them all the time. I heard one last night. But, but, they, but, pastor, but, pastor, I knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. What does the Bible say? You have to get used to saying, what does the Bible say? So, though people are today preoccupied with demons, sadly, many, viewing virtually everything that, and I've talked to Christians over the years, who believe there's a demon under every bush and everything that goes wrong in a Christian's life is a direct result of demonic activity. Not so. Amen. Not so. And very often, I've been asked over the years to perform exorcisms. This person has a demon. Pastor, would you exorcise them? Would you pray over them and cast the demon out? No. So the question arises... Can Christians be possessed by demons? Do we need to be terrified by them? The Bible reveals the truth about the demonic realm, its origin, activity, and destiny. The Bible tells us all we need to know. Now, originally, demons were holy angels, they weren't always demons. They're originally holy angels, and Satan was the highest ranking of all of them. Satan, the most powerful, most beautiful, most engaging of all of God's creation. He's called the anointed cherub. The cherubim were the class of angels uh, that would guard the throne of God. If you recall from the Old Testament, when God commanded Moses to make the Ark of the Covenant, the lid on the Ark was solid gold, and there were to be two cherubim on the Ark with their wings extended. And uh, these are, cherubim were the highest class of angels that we think, okay? And so he was a cherub. Look at, look at with me. Uh, these, the demons dwelled in heaven. They originally served and worshiped God, but because of pride, Satan rebelled against God and fell. There's two passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28. They give us some insight into the fall of Satan. I want to call your attention to those. Now, originally, the passages, when you read them, they're directed to uh, temporal kings, the king of Tyre, king of Sidon. But there's spiritual forces of darkness that are behind those kings. And so God is talking not only to the king, but he's actually talking to the power, the spiritual power that's ruling behind and influencing that particular king. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? That's where we get the term Lucifer from, morning star. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, now notice all the I wills. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Does that sound like pride to you? Yeah, absolutely. There's a companion passage in Ezekiel chapter 28. 
son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre. Say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Now he's speaking to the king, but he's actually speaking through the king to the spiritual dynamic behind him. You were a model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as the guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till what? Wickedness was found in you. And through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. So you see this, you see this picture in this description of this being who sinned, who exalted himself above the throne of God. Now in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 12, we see there's an allusion to a third of the stars of heaven swept from there by the tail of the dragon. Another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon. That's another description of Satan with seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. That's, most, most scholars think that's a reference to the holy angels siding with Satan in his rebellion. So however many angels there are, there are myriads of angels, we're told. A third of them have become now demons. Are you with me? As a result of their pride and their rebellion, they're cast out of heaven along with their leader, Luke Chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus tells us, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. However, they still apparently have access to heaven. They have access to the throne of God because you read in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, Satan, what? He approaches the throne and what does he do? Yeah, he wants to incite God against Job, right? So apparently he has access, but that's only temporary. So, that's where they come from. That's where demons start from. So what did they do? What do demons do exactly? Does God, does God have a, his will for us? Is his will and purpose des- described as being uh, good, pleasing, and perfect? Yeah. So what do you think Satan's will is? The very, very opposite. So Satan and demons... Their purpose is to oppose the will of God in our lives and in the created order. They are behind the evil and corrupt world system. How would you describe the world system? Money, money, money. Me, me, me. Have it your way. We even make up jingles, don't we? Yeah, the world system. And the world system dominates the lives of all those who don't belong to God. How does one belong to God? By faith in who? Jesus Christ, just like Alyssa reminded us this morning. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Why? Why? What's the matter with that? Well, because you have to realize who's behind it. Who's behind the pattern of this world? It's the devil, Satan. John says in 1 John chapter 2, don't love the world or the things of the world. The love of God is not in you if you love these things. Why? Why should we not love the world? Because the, the demonic realm is behind it inciting and working through it. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus said that all unbelievers are children of the devil. Whoa, imagine that. All believers, all all unbelievers are children of the devil. 
The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, the whole unbelieving world is under the control of the devil. John writes the same thing in 1 John chapter 5. The whole world is under the control of the devil. Wait a minute, I thought God was sovereign. He is sovereign. How many know that he's got Satan on a short leash? Satan can't do anything without God's allowing it and giving him permission. Evidence, uh, his account with Job. Jesus calls Satan the God, the ruler, the prince, if you will, of this world. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, we read this. Now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. So he's given some authority. He's given some ability to rule and reign temporarily. We look also at chapter 14, verse 30 of John. Jesus says, I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. And then in chapter 16, verse 11, in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands what? Condemned. Condemned. The Apostle Paul tells us that he blinds unbelievers to spiritual truth. But not only that, he leads unbelievers into deception. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. So there are false teachers, false leaders, false apostles. They say a good story. They sound good. They seem to make sense. However, he says they're false. They masquerade. He says, no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then. If his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. So Satan and his minions lead people into deception, false teachers, false teaching. Where do we see the first appearance of Satan in the Bible? Do you remember? Genesis chapter 3, right? In the garden. God has created the garden, created it perfectly, created the man and the woman, put them in the garden, created everything. He's given them stewardship over all of his creation. And then what happens? There's apparently an animal, an animal that is a higher life form of some sort and apparently has the capacity to speak. How do we know that? Because he speaks. You say, well, you mean, you mean serpents could talk back then? Apparently. I mean, if you went to the zoo and you went into the snake place, where they have all the snakes and serpents and stuff, and you're walking through touring and a boa constrictor stands up and starts talking to you, would you think that a bit strange? You see him on candid camera? She has a conversation with the serpent as if this is normal. Apparently, there were higher forms of animals back then, before the fall, that had capacities that we don't know and realize today. And probably this one animal, he's described as crafty, had the ability to speak. What a logical and and reasonable animal to take possession of and utilize that capacity for speech to speak to the woman. Do you see that? So he does that. And he speaks to the woman. What's he trying to do? He wants her, he wants her to do what? Lean on her own understanding, right? Not trust in God with her whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. What does she do? <clears throat> she bites, doesn't she? Sadly. So we meet Satan. That's the first time we meet Satan in the Old Testament. Where's the first and only appearance in the Old Testament of demons, do you think? Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, we meet demons who somehow, we're told, cohabitate with women and have children by them. Now, that's a debated passage, 
It's obscure. We don't really know exactly what happened. However, there are two companion passages in the New Testament. Second Peter chapter 2, God did not spare angels when they sinned. What, what exactly did they do? Sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. There's also a companion passage in Jude. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home... These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So there are, uh, there's some angels, apparently, who've done something really bad. <laughs> and he's bound them uh, in chains in gloom until the final day of judgment. In the New Testament, demonic activity is confined basically, when you read your Bible, it's confined basically to the Gospels and to the book of Acts. Okay? You don't see it in the, in, the, in the epistles. Demons are alluded to in the letters to the churches. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. Do they know that? Do, do unbelievers know that sacrifices are to demons? No, they don't. Not to God. I, want you to be part- I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. So again, demonic realm is alluded to, Paul talks about it there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So again, another allusion to the demonic realm in the New Testament. James chapter 2, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and they what? They shudder. Chapter 3 of James. Speaking about wisdom, if you lack wisdom, what should you do? Ask, it'll be given liberally. But then he contrasts heavenly, godly wisdom with temporal wisdom. He says that wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. And so we see a number of allusions now, references to the demonic, but we don't really see them in practice. They are real. They are personal beings, fallen spiritual beings who are totally given to evil, totally given to wickedness. There's nothing good about them. Nothing good about them. Now we saw last time, as we saw Jesus visiting his hometown Nazareth, right? We saw last time that Jesus launched his public ministry in Nazareth by announcing his purpose. What was his purpose? Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. He's in the synagogue. The Isaiah scroll is given to him. He turns and opens it to Isaiah chapter 61. He reads this messianic prophecy. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he announces his public ministry in Nazareth. Now he's in Capernaum. And in Capernaum, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of that ministry that he has announced. The mission to set people free. And we see it first by his exercising power and authority over the demonic realm. Are you with me? Okay, so Luke says he's already announced this. Now we begin to see him carry out the fulfillment of that prophecy, and he starts with the demonic realm. Now, Luke points to the beginning of that fulfillment, again, in our passage as we're reading it. The evil spirits, do you think they know who Jesus is? Do you think they know why he's come? (laughs) absolutely they know their fate and their fate is everlasting torment in the eternal fire of hell that uh, Jesus says in Matthew 25 hell was prepared for the devil and his angels is God sending people to hell no his purpose is to what rescue people from hell I'm forever hearing this and you've probably heard it too maybe you said it at some point Well, if God was so good and so loving, why is he sending people to hell? These are good people. 
No, no, no. You got it wrong. He's not sending people to hell. We're going there all on our own. We are hell-bent, if you will. His purpose is to rescue us. Read again Jesus' prophecy, Jesus' fulfillment of that Isaiah passage. He's come to rescue people, set people free, not send people to hell. So he left Nazareth. His first miracle, right? Left Nazareth, walked through the crowd that tried to kill him. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Goes down to Capernaum now. Capernaum's going to become his new hometown, his new base of operations. As was his custom, on the Sabbath, where does Jesus go? Synagogue. Remember, Jesus always goes to church on Sunday. Or in his case, Saturday. (laughs) Right? It was his custom to go. What was Jesus' priority? What's Jesus' priority? What did he do in the synagogue? Teach. His priority is always to teach the word. Do we need to know God's word? Are we thankful for all the teachers God has given us? Yes, we are thankful for the Holy Spirit who teaches us. John says, the Holy Spirit in you teaches you. All you have to do is read and study. So Jesus' priority was to teach, to teach God's word. Now, in the synagogue there at Capernaum, we're not told what passage he's teaching on. Could very possibly be the very same passage he taught on in Nazareth. Isaiah chapter 61. We don't know. It's not told. But whatever the text, the people again were amazed because he taught with authority. He taught with authority. He wasn't teaching like the teachers they're accustomed to. All the other rabbis taught, but they're always quoting other rabbis. So there was the same old, same old. Jesus comes and he teaches with authority. He's declaring God's word. He's declaring his word. This is my word I'm telling you. If you go back to Matthew's gospel and the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard, he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard, you was taught, but I tell you. So he's teaching, and he's teaching with authority, powerful, clarity, no doubt, no doubt. His teaching produced great conviction, great conviction. But on this occasion, the convicting force of Jesus' teaching hit, strangely enough, a demon. Look at verse 33. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice. So there's a demon literally living inside this man in the synagogue. Now, in the New Testament accounts of demonic activity, the unique and bizarre behavior associated with demon possession was never confused with insanity. They knew there was a demon there. There was no doubt. Sometimes we go, ah, you know, what is this? The demons were always rational. They were always rational when they spoke. You see, they understood who Jesus was and that he was going to destroy them. They knew that. They lived with that shadow over their proverbial heads, if you will, if I can describe them that way. Even when a demon addressed unbelievers in Acts chapter 19, he spoke rationally to some would-be exorcists. It's a famous passage. You maybe read it. And this is Paul... And he says, or Luke says, and one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I know, I know about Paul, but who are you? And he, the demon promptly beats up and chases these guys out of town who were these would-be exorcists. Now during the future time of the tribulation, demonic activity will again increase dramatically. We don't see it so much. We don't see it so much. Somehow, for some reason, 
It's kind of tempered. It's behind the scenes. It's not really out front and aggressive in our culture. There are, there are these demons that we noticed, noticed earlier that are bound in the bottomless pit. They'll be released to join those already operating on the earth, and they will absolutely wreak havoc. Revelation chapter 9 the fifth angel sounded his trumpet. I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke arose from it like smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Oh, you want to make sure you have the seal of God on your forehead. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of a sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Does that sound like a fun time? No. We're told that, that demons are going to really, demonic activity is really going to increase on the earth uh, during the time after the tribulation. Demon possession is a supernatural phenomenon. What is it? Supernatural phenomenon. It's not explainable in psychological or physical language or terms. It's supernatural. These are supernatural beings. When Jesus delivered an individual from demon possession, there is never, notice, you read the accounts, there's never a reference to forgiveness of sins. He just delivers them. Not a reference at all to being the, the one who's delivered, being repentant. No evidence at all in those accounts. Read them closely. Demon-possessed people whom Jesus delivered were not necessarily any more wicked than other sinners. Why is that? Why are these things not mentioned or alluded to? Because the emphasis in these accounts is on Jesus' power and Jesus' authority over the demonic realm. The emphasis is not on the individuals being delivered. We're not told a lot about them except they were delivered of a demon. They had a demon. The emphasis is always on Jesus, on his power, and his authority to deliver. Do you understand? Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Now, after Jesus and the apostles passed off the scene, the only way to be delivered from demonic possession is how? Jesus and the apostles aren't here. They, they were predominantly the ones who delivered people. How about today? How do people get delivered from demonic possession? What do you think? The only way, the only way is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. Sin in a person's life gives the devil a foothold. Repentance loosens that foothold, and Jesus sets us free by the power of his spirit in us. It's the only way. Now, the general influence demons have are in these areas. They promote false doctrine. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith, follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Demons are, their, their purpose is to deceive. If they can deceive you, they can discourage you. If they can discourage you, they can defeat you. They don't have to possess you. They just get you to believe errors. That's why it's so important to know the word. So important to read your Bible. False worship. We saw this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We read this passage. Sacrifice of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Immorality. 
Immorality is another area. First Timothy chapter 4 once again. Spirit clearly says in latter times, some will abandon the faith, follow deceiving spirits, the things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry, order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. And so we see there very clearly that immorality is something that is put forth by these demons. And then, of course, there, James talks about attitudes, attitudes of envy, jealousy, selfish ambition, divisiveness, pride. Their activity is in these areas to stimulate those kinds of things. Have you ever been jealous about somebody? You know where that comes from, right? It's coming right from the pit of hell. Envy. Envy. Ambition, selfish ambition. Being divisive. And certainly pride. All these things are the product of demons working in our midst. Should we guard against those things? Yes. Look with me at Matthew chapter 12, real quickly here. This is a famous parable that Jesus teaches. And it's a a parable that speaks about judgment. He's already talking to the Jews, and they're demanding a sign, a miracle again. And he says it's just a wicked and adulterous generation that clamors after signs. And then after, after talking to them, he says this in verse 43. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through the arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. Literally, it's I will return to, to my house that I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. The final condition of that man is worse than the first. Notice, please, the phrase, the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. What do you think that is a reference to? It's a reference simply to moral and religious reform apart from true salvation. You can clean up your act. You can go to a 12-step program. You can be really looking good. But that doesn't mean you're saved. You need to be saved. You need the Holy Spirit living in you. Ritual exercises and exorcisms and efforts at self-reform apart from true salvation, will not free anyone from Satan's kingdom of darkness. Only those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Only those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are rescued from the dominion of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's Son. Colossians 1.13 God rescues us. We call. We call. They that call upon the Lord will be what? Saved. So just just cleaning up your act doesn't do it. You can have a nice clean house leaning on your own understanding again and if a demon has has left, it's going to go around, it's going to come back and your latter conditions will be worse than the first if you're not a believer. There's no clear example in the Bible that I could find where a demon ever inhabits or invades a true believer. That's always a question people have. Can believers be demon-possessed? The answer is no. I can't find any passage that even alludes vaguely to that. Never in the New Testament letters to the churches our believers warned about the possibility of being inhabited by demonic beings. No place. Neither do we see anyone rebuking, binding, or casting demons out of a true believer. In fact, 
the New Testament letters to the churches never instruct believers to cast out demons, whether from believers or even unbelievers. And that's a common thing that people do. Christians say, I'm going to cast a demon. I'm going to... You can't do that. There's no warrant for it. We're not told to do it. That person is only going to be set free by how? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus and the apostles were the only ones who cast out demons, and in every instance, the demon-possessed people were unbelievers. Demons can never indwell a true believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? They can't, they can't be together. What does the believer have in common with an unbeliever? Nothing. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the what? Living God. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And only the Holy Spirit lives there. There's not a compartment for the Holy Spirit and a compartment for Satan. Okay. There's no sharing of our lives in that sense. Are you with me? Again, I recall your attention to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says, God rescues us from the dominion of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of the Son who he loves. Who rescues us? God does. How does he do that? He does it because we profess faith in Jesus Christ. He's saving us. He rescues us and transfers us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 13. John says, we have overcome the evil one. We've overcome. And of course, this is one of the greatest verses, John, 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Notice, he's in the world. He's not in me. Who's in me? Holy Spirit. That's right. The Spirit of the living God. The Spirit of Christ. Now let's go back to our passage in Luke chapter 4. Luke says that Jesus' teaching unnerved, apparently, this particular demon. And the demon cries out at the top of his voice, probably right in the middle of Jesus' teaching. How rude. Why did he do that? What happened? Well, apparently... The demon felt the power of the presence of Jesus. He's here. <laughs> He's here. The Son of God, the Lord, who had come to invade the kingdom of darkness and to free all those held captive by the devil by bringing them good news. Good news. So as Jesus was preaching the good news... They had come to deliver the poor. He had come to deliver the prisoners. He had come to deliver the blind and the oppressed. The dreaded reality, the ultimate doom of this demon hit him. And he panics. He panics. Verse 34. Look what he says in verse 34. Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Is there any doubt in his mind who Jesus is? No. Is there doubt in the minds of all those in the, fair, in the, in the synagogue who Jesus might be? Yeah. They're, they're, they're just not sure who he is. The demon knew all too well that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Holy One of God, who had absolute power and authority over him, he knew who Jesus was. And he knew why Jesus was there. I think it interesting, by the way, that in a religious environment like Israel's, demons would rather stay hidden as they sit in religious services. They don't want you to know they're there. See, that's their disguise as an angel of light. They prefer not to blow their cover. Every false religion, no matter how moral it is, 
is demon-controlled, and there are surely demons present in the leaders and as well in the deceived people who follow them. But it seems such a, those such nice people. Seems that way. Seems that way. But the demons stay silent by design. But this demon could not hold his terror, couldn't hold it in when the Holy One of God, Jesus of Nazareth, was present. He panics. He panics. Have you come to destroy us? In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The writer to the Hebrews says much the same thing in Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So God became a man in the person of Jesus so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. What's the one thing that most people fear today? Death. I mean, we do everything we can to preserve our lives, don't we? Some guy comes along and wants to rob you. He's got a gun holding on you. Do you panic? No. You say, go ahead and shoot me. Shoot me. I'm going to heaven. You're not getting my money. <laughs> it's God's money anyway. I'm going to heaven. I'm not afraid. But this demon was terrified, not only because he knew who Jesus was, but also what Jesus' purpose was for him and his fellow demons. This demon knew about the sentence to the eternal fire of hell. And he was also terrified that Jesus was going to carry out that sentence right then and there. And since Jesus lives in true believers, you may not have thought about this. Jesus lives in us, true, by his spirit? Guess what? Demons fear us. They do? Why do demons fear us? Because they supremely dread the one who lives in us. Are we safe? Yes. Luke says, Jesus told the demon to be quiet, come out of the man. Notice, please, no rituals, no incantations, no discussion, no debate, no struggle. Jesus spoke, the demon had no choice but to what? Instantly obey. The demon left, as he was told, without injuring the man. He didn't dare to do that. He knew better. The people in the synagogue, already amazed at Jesus' teaching, were further amazed by his absolute authority over the supernatural demonic realm. What is this? We've never seen this before. This is unprecedented. These things had never happened. And news about Jesus spreads throughout the surrounding area. Beloved, this demonstration of Jesus' power over Satan in the demonic realm reveals his ability to deliver sinners from their grasp. Again, I call your attention to this marvelous verse. God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son whom he loves. Amen? Amen. Now, if you're not a Christian, you come this morning, however somebody dragged you here, begged you to come, maybe you just thought you'd stop in, you're curious. If you're not a Christian, if you're not born again, you are not safe. You are not safe. You are not safe from demons. You say, yeah, but I don't, I don't think I'd do anything that, that would, a demon would... 
You, know, you are already in Satan's kingdom. You're under his authority and power. A demon can possess you anytime they choose. You're not safe. Nor, if you're, if you're not born again, you are not safe from hell. That's the plain teaching of the Bible. God wants you to be safe. He wants to rescue you. All you have to do is look up. Call on the name of the Lord. Say, Lord, I, I don't want to be vulnerable like this. I don't want to be not safe. Have mercy on me. You can do it as you sit in your chair right there. If God speak into your heart today. I want to call your attention to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter preaches his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. As he preaches, Luke says people are cut to the heart, convicted. They cry out, what must we do? Peter gives them the three-step plan. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll be saved. Wouldn't that be glorious? Put your faith in Jesus if you don't know him yet. Don't wait. Don't wait. There's no guarantee of a tomorrow. How many know that? Stuff happens, doesn't it? Amen? Yeah. All right. Do we, do we have a good understanding of the demonic realm now? Yes. yes. Okay, good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your provision. We thank you for your great salvation. We thank you, Lord, that demons, though they're real, for God, you have saved us and delivered us from them. You tell us very simply, Lord, when we are tempted just to stand firm in the faith, resist them, and they will flee. They have no place in us. We just thank you, Father, for this knowledge, for this understanding. Thank you for your protection, and thank you for your great salvation. Father, as we come to your table, we ask that you would search our hearts, and if there's any wrong or hurtful way in us, that we could be convicted of those things. We would confess them to you, assured of your forgiveness and your cleansing from all unrighteousness. That we come to your table with clean hands. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.